Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We looked at the first 15 verses last week. Uh, talked about that uh, the Apostle Paul, after he had finished his work at Ephesus, he traveled north through Macedonia and then headed south uh, through Greece to a city named Corinth. Uh, he spent three months there, probably in the winter of 57 and 58 uh, AD, somewhere in there. And at that point, he decided that he needed to head back to Jerusalem. So he boarded a boat, a little seaport named Sincrea, which is about four miles south of Corinth on the Aegean Sea. And uh, as he was ready to sail, he, uh, word came to him that there was a plot <laughs> against his life by the Jews who were hostile towards him. And uh, so he decided <laughs> that it would be better for him to go take the overland route and uh, sent, he was, was there with a bunch of guys, seven men from various churches that uh, he had come together to bring an offering to Jerusalem with him. And, and he said, you guys go ahead, I'm going to walk. <laughs> and so he doubled back, went back through Macedonia and uh, then came to uh, to Philippi. <clears throat> now, Philippi, interesting, and that was the first place where Paul landed on his previous journey when he went from a city called Troas to Philippi, where the first European church had been founded. And so here he's back at Philippi. He reunites with this guy named Luke, who he had left there on a previous journey. And uh, they're going to head out and go down to uh, the city of Troas. So they get on a boat uh, in it's a city called Neapolis because Philippi was inland a bit. They, they built cities inland so that they wouldn't be under threat of military attack by being right on the water. Uh, and then they take a five-day journey. We talked about that last week, that they had to tack against the wind uh, to go down to Troas. Uh, and there he was reunited with his traveling companions and uh, uh, at Troas. It, it, now, Troas is a city. It's about 150 miles north of Ephesus, just so that you can kind of get an idea. I don't have a large map to show you on that. I'll show you a smaller one in a minute. But uh, he was. we looked last week at his trip from Troas to Ephesus, and he kind of hopscotched down, stopping at a bunch of islands and different seaports on the way. But they had spent a week at Troas, and uh, the day before he was scheduled to leave, uh, Paul was gathered with a bunch of believers, and he ends up preaching till midnight. And we looked at that uh, marathon <laughs> preaching session. And as a result, a guy by the name of Eutychus had fallen asleep, fallen out of a window, fell three stories to his death. <laughs> and... So Paul rushed down there and saw Eutychus lying there. And again, remember, Luke is writing this, and he's a doctor. And, and when he says that the guy was dead, pretty well assured he was dead. And so Paul goes down, he falls on top of this guy, Eutychus, and he tells everybody, don't trouble yourselves, for his life is in him, his soul is in him. And Eutychus revives. So at that point, Paul goes back upstairs and he continues preaching until dawn the next day. I mean, this, <laughs> he, he must have had a lot to say. And I mentioned last week, and you guys think I'm bad. You don't want to be, I mean, that would have been, I, 
on one hand, I think, wow, I would have been worn out. On the other hand, I would think, you know, just to sit and to listen to the Apostle Paul teach, I would have been absolutely engaged the whole time. And, and I, would have, I would have probably thought it was too short when he was done. So, like I said, we wrapped up last week looking at this, the trip that he made, zigzagging down through the Aegean Sea to a city called Miletus, which is about 30 miles south of Ephesus. Uh, and we're going to start, we're going to pick up uh, this morning in the second half of verse 15, where we read, The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogillium, and the next day we came to Miletus. So I have some slides here. This first slide, uh, as, you, as you see, the city is about 30 miles due south of Ephesus. Paul bypasses Ephesus. Remember, he'd been there for three years. Ephesus is a city of about a quarter million people. It's a a big city. And they had thoroughly evangelized that city. And so he would have been a popular guy. So as you see here, they stopped at the island of Samos the night before at Trogillium and then headed into Miletus. The second slide that we have here is just one of the ruins at Miletus. Uh, and, and a little bit about this town. It's interesting background. For hundreds of years uh, prior to this, the city of Miletus had been a leading center for commerce and art and all of that and culture uh, in the Mediterranean world. I mean, it was a big uh, city. It was a big deal. And now during the Greek Empire, Miletus it had been a thriving seaport. It was a commercial center uh, on the Mediterranean. It, it was situated near the mouth of a river. It was called the Meander River. So over time, what had happened now, Miletus at this point, when Paul gets there, uh, when he sails past Ephesus, it was not. It was a shadow of its former self uh, because the silt from the, the Meander River had been depositing over many, many decades into the harbor at Miletus, and it filled in the harbor. So this once busy seaport then began to die. Uh, at the same time, Ephesus had been established and was growing uh, as a center for commerce and shipping. And it was, as we looked at, it was only 30 miles north. And so people were relocating both their businesses and their homes and everything else, and Ephesus began to take off. Miletus went into steady decline uh, up until the point where about 200 years prior to the events we look at here in Acts chapter 20, the city had been reduced to essentially a a shallow seaport uh, that had a small harbor. So Paul goes past Ephesus and he lands here. Uh, Verse 16 says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Having spent three years in Ephesus, had Paul sailed there instead of to Miletus, he knew that he wasn't going to have a short visit. Uh, And so he was just using wisdom. He knew that he wanted to talk with these guys. He knew that he needed to meet with the leaders of the church there. Uh, and something that occurred to me, too, and, and this is, I mentioned taking a rabbit trail. We're going to take a side trip here for a while, and then we'll come back to the text. But remember, Paul, in his former life, 
he had been steeped in Judaism. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin uh, as to the law found blameless. And, and he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the, a very prestigious rabbi uh, of their day. And so he says, look, I count all of that as loss. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He uses the personal pronoun, my Lord, there. And that's fine. But that didn't mean that he didn't continue to have a burden for his countrymen. We read about that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's a huge burden that he had uh, for those people. And so he says, I need to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And the question occurs to me is why? Why was it important to him to be there on that day? And I believe, and we're going to get into some interpretation here, uh, but I think it's it's well-founded interpretation. Uh, so don't throw any rotten fruit at me. Uh, seriously, though, guys, I, I think that it's it's really under it's important that we understand Paul's mindset. He understood the significance of this day uh, for his countrymen and for the church because Pentecost was shared at that point between the two. Well, look at that. I've got some charts I'm going to show you. So also he's in a hurry. When he goes to Miletus, uh, it says there in verse 7 that, that he left the Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. All right. So he sails for five days to Troas, and then he takes uh, a week in Troas. It says that they were there for a week, and it took about another week for him to sail from Troas to Miletus, and now his time with the elders, a couple of days probably, uh, by the time he sends for them, they come down. It's a 30-mile trip. So at most, he's got three weeks uh, to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. I mean, he was definitely on a tight schedule. So as we look at this, I want to give you my thoughts on why. And, and then we're going to get into and we're going to look at, we're going to study some significant things about Pentecost. Uh, and we'll look at Paul's MO here as we go along. So the first thing I want to mention is that Pentecost was a big deal for the early church. Something miraculous, something supernatural had happened on that day as the Holy Spirit had been poured out and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ. Not only was Pentecost the anniversary of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, it also has significant uh, foreshadows in, in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot that is said about this day. And so as was his custom, and we've looked at it over and over again in the book of Acts, where it says that as soon as Paul would arrive in a city, he, where would he go? He would go to the synagogue and begin to reason with the Jews. Because, again, we see that, and we see it in the beginning of Romans, where he says the gospel is the power of God to salvation, and that he took it upon himself to share with the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And a Gentile is essentially anybody that's not Jewish. So I think that he has this burden for the people who are still caught up in Judaism, but he also has a love for the church. Therefore, Pentecost was a really big deal to him. I also think he saw it as an opportunity. Even though he was, when he knew, and we'll look at it next week, that when he went back to Jerusalem, he says that chains and tribulations await me there. He knew that he would be in great danger, and he indeed would be. When we get into chapter 21, we'll see it. 
but he didn't care. He, and there's a wonderful passage there in chapter 21 where or the guys are trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem. He says, what, what are you doing? What do you mean? I have to fulfill the ministry that God's given me. And I really don't care about anything else. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's a powerful passage. So as we look at this, again, Paul saw an opportunity. He needed to get back to, to Jerusalem by Pentecost because he wanted to be able to appeal to the people from the Old Testament scriptures. He wanted to be able to share with them the power of God unto salvation. Now, there are a lot of parallels, as I mentioned, and I want to go into some of those parallels this morning. Uh, and we're going to look at a number of them, and possibly uh, some of them may have been known to Paul at the time. I, I can't think that they wouldn't have been, because he was, again, he, he, was, he had the equivalent of a double PhD in theology. So he kind of knew what he was talking about, and he kind of knew the scriptures of that day. So in this third slide, we see a chart uh, here that has the seven feasts of Israel according to the Jewish calendar. And if you've been at this church for long, I've uh, hauled this out from time to time whenever we start talking about the feasts because it's important that we understand that those feasts, every one of those seven feasts of Israel, the seven national feasts, pointed to a future fulfillment that we would see in Christ. Okay, notice the first three feasts there on the left uh, they have a past fulfillment in Jesus' first coming. All right, Specifically, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We see Passover. Jesus was crucified at Passover. They were in a hurry to put his body in the tomb because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was about to take place. And that's, uh, again, symbolic of... Uh, of what happened in Egypt when Egypt hastily left, or Israel hastily left Egypt. They were in a hurry. The people were in a hurry that night to get his body in the tomb. Remember, they didn't even finish embalming him, and that's what Mary was going to do on the morning that she discovered he had been resurrected. Now, the Feast of First Fruits, which is what we talked about with Paul when he left Philippi after this Feast of First Fruits, or after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I mean, it, that, that was a week-long feast. It went from uh, Nisan 15 to Nisan 22nd. All right? After that, then, now this is Passover, and then the next day begins Unleavened Bread, and then the day after that begins First Fruits, as you see here. And it's also called, now when you go out to Pentecost, it's also called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks gets its name because in the law, they were commanded that seven weeks after, the day after the Passover, that they would have a holy convocation to the Lord and they would sacrifice, would be a celebration of the early harvest. That's the original uh, thing that happened. But also what happened during the Feast of Weeks or what happened on that same day was the law was given to Moses at Sinai. Now remember when Moses came down the mountain at Sinai and he came down with the tablets in his hand and he heard what sounded like war in the camp, and he inquired in his brother Aaron, and I love that saying. It's like when somebody tells me something kind of lame, and Aaron said, or Moses says, what's that sound? And Aaron said, well, you know, it's the sound of singing. And he says, well, what happened? You got this golden calf here. And Aaron said, well, it just jumped out of the fire. And I think... Yeah, it just kind of created itself, and that's what it did. At any rate, 
Moses commanded that the men go about the camp. And he gave the Levites charge to go about and to dispatch everybody that was responsible for this whole thing that had taken place. And the Bible tells us that on that day, 3,000 people died. All right? Same day, Pentecost, ushering in the, the, the time of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's poured out, Peter gets up and preaches, and how many people get saved? 3,000. Fascinating. You can't make this up. So we've got this feast of Pentecost here. The, the, the law was given at Sinai. The Spirit was given on Mount Zion. Again, both coming down the mountain. One is with the law. One is with the, the, the Spirit, ushering in the age of grace. And it's a celebration of the early harvest. So we have the three feasts on the left that are fulfilled in the first coming. We also look at three feasts on the right, and we're not going to get into them very deeply this morning, that are fulfilled in the second coming. The Feast of Trumpets, which uh, leads to a fulfillment with the rapture, and we're going to look at that as a maybe this morning. I have always held that that's truly what it is, but there's some things that we're going to look at. Uh, it may very well be uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, the, again, finding its fulfillment in the tribulation of the saints, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is, finds its fulfillment in the millennial reign of Christ, the, the millennium. Uh, and, and so, again, not going to get into that much this morning, but notice at the bottom it says the church age with a red circle around it. That's between the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, and the Feast of Trumpets. The rapture, or when the church is taken up. And that's if the church is taken up at trumpets, then that is the church age. If it's another date, that could be too. We don't know. Nobody knows the hour or the date. Nobody knows, and there's nothing prophetically that has to happen for the Lord to come back for his church. There's nothing that has to take place. However, uh, we've got a, there's some interesting linkage here uh, that I want to look at because this middle feast, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, has direct and present application to the church. So let's zoom in on slide four and focus on the spring feast for a minute. Again, uh, Passover fulfilled with Jesus' death, unleavened bread fulfilled with Jesus' burial, first fruits fulfilled with Jesus' resurrection, and then 50 days out is this Feast of Pentecost, the, the, the Feast of Weeks. All right? Uh, so when Israel crossed the Red Sea, God had set his people apart from the Egyptians and inaugurated a covenant relationship with them. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, God set his people apart from the world and inaugurated a new covenant relationship with his people. Both were on the same day. Exactly the same day on the Hebrew calendar. Exactly 50 days after their Red Sea deliverance, God gave Israel the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, ratifying the covenant of law that he had made with Israel. It was a ratification of the covenant. He's saying, this is what it is. Now it's in concrete. Exactly 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, God gave the church the Holy Spirit at Mount Zion and ratified the new covenant of grace that he had made with the church. Both were on the same day. Perfectly fulfilled. So the question is, is there a future significance to this unique middle feast, Pentecost? Uh, 
And the answer is, I believe there is. However, I'm really not, I'm not sure what that looks like, and I'm certainly not going to start setting dates. That is a dangerous endeavor. I believe it's a fool's errand when people start setting dates because Jesus says it's not important that you know the date. What's important is that you be ready. And we'll talk about that in a bit. So with that in mind, let's look at a very interesting aspect of this, and that is that uh, I want to look at Enoch from way back in the book of Genesis in the seventh generation from Adam. And he was an interesting guy. Not a lot known about him, but there's enough to where Enoch's life and, and the way that he left this earth is sort of steeped in mystery. In Genesis 5.24, we read, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch didn't see death. He was taken up by God. And it's interesting that now also there's a rabbinical, uh, in the oral tradition of the Jews, they say that Enoch's birth date was Sivan 6, which is the day that Pentecost is commemorated, the day of Pentecost. They also say that he was taken up on his birthday. And I don't know if that's true or not. It's not in God's word, and so I'm not, I'm not going to play that out. However, whether it's true or not, uh, we don't know. But we do know that there were three categories of people facing the judgment of the flood of Noah. This is where it gets interesting. There were those that perished in the flood. And those that, there were those that were preserved through the flood, the ones that were in the ark, Noah and his family. There are eight people, we're told. And those that did not see death and who were removed prior to the judgment of the flood, namely Enoch. With regard to the pending judgment of God, and this is serious stuff, which is yet to come upon the earth, we see three categories of people as well. Those that will perish in the tribulation. Those that will be preserved through the tribulation, the tribulation saints. And if you've studied much in eschatology or the study of end times, uh, there is a group of people that come through that period of time, that awful period of time. The third category of people is those that will not see death that will be removed prior to the judgment of the tribulation. That's the rapture of the church. Interesting. Interesting. So the question becomes, is it plausible that Enoch could be a foreshadowing of a supernatural removal of God's people prior to the judgment? And I, I have held that the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the seventh, it's the first of the seventh month, the month of Tishri, that it finds its fulfillment with the rapture of the church. Still have that on my chart up there that we showed you a minute ago. But at the same time, again, nobody knows. So is it plausible for the church to be taken up as a fulfillment of the early harvest? That's what Pentecost, well, that's what the Feast of Weeks was originally designed to commemorate the early harvest. It was a celebration of the early harvest. So would the church being taken out of here qualify as the early harvest? Is it plausible for the church, also the Holy Spirit, to be taken up on the anniversary of the same day in which the Spirit came down? Because we know that when the church is raptured, that we're told in 1 Thessalonians that, that the restrainer will be taken out of the way. Who's the restrainer? The Holy Spirit. How come he's taken out of the way? Because the church is the representation of Christ on this earth. 
Why? Because we are the vessels. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's not a temple somewhere that has the, the presence of God. That temple is you and I, if you're a believer, if you know the Lord Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost and began to indwell men and women, is it plausible that God would take him back up on that day? Because he uses the same days a lot, as you see, in his divine calendar of the way he works things out. I don't know. I don't know. By the way, Pentecost is three weeks from today, <laughs> on, the, on May 28th. It, 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 you know, I thought about putting in my notes, so pack your bag. No, you won't have to pack for that. <clears throat> you really won't have to pack. And that's really refreshing, because when my wife and I pack for a trip, <laughs> we pack for a trip. <laughs> you know, we're the kind of people that are sitting on the suitcase to try to get clothes and all that. <clears throat> It'll be nice to just be out of here. So all of those things are plausible. <clears throat> But again, here's the caveat. We, the church, need to be ready. That's the point. The point in this is not, you know, I mean, and I, you know, I love fun Bible gyrations where we look at shadows. I mean, there's, and there are so many. I love these kind of studies because it's really interesting to plumb God's word and to see the, <clears throat> the synchronicity <clears throat> of all of it, how all of it meshes together over centuries and centuries and centuries and different writers and different things taking place and that God is behind it all and he's saying, yeah, let me just show you the veracity. Let me show you how dependable, how accurate my word is. Extremely accurate. Let me give you encouragement that I haven't forgotten. I love what Peter says. He says, the Lord is not slow. He's patient not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Talk about that in a bit. So we don't know, but the important thing, gang, is we need to be ready. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So how's that for a massive rabbit trail? (laughs) Back to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And now, he calls for these guys, and I'm convinced he doesn't want to just have a meeting. You know how very often it's like, I'll talk to people, oh, sorry, I'm in a meeting. No, he, this wasn't because he just wanted to have a formal, you know, elders meeting. They weren't going to, you know, be doing minutes, doing Robert's Rules of Order and all of that. He wanted to call and to, to talk with these guys because he loved them, and he had some very strong concerns in his heart that I believe God had put there that he wanted to convey to them. Also, it's, it's interesting to note that he speaks here not as Paul the evangelist. This is Paul the pastor. This is Paul the shepherd, the poiman. This is the apostle Paul with a heart for the people that he had ministered to for the last three years. He spent weeks and months with these guys. Uh, and, and we don't know what their background was. We know that they were Ephesian elders. That's what, that's all we know about them. Perhaps they had served with him and maybe they had been taught by him at the school of Tyrannus. We don't know. Maybe they had seen firsthand the sons of Sceva running out of that house naked. <laughs> that's just, that's a great scene. I hope they have reruns when I get to heaven. I want to see that. Maybe they'd been at the theater the day of the riot. In all of it, there's no doubt that they'd spend a lot of time together. 
My point is, Paul knew these men well. And he formed a common bond with them for the years that he had spent together with them. Another thing about this, and now Luke pens that at the end of this chapter that, that Paul knew that he would see their faces no more. But that's not when Paul discovered it. That's when Luke wrote it. Paul goes into this knowing this is it. Uh, he knows that, this, and the Spirit of God had shown him uh, that he wouldn't see these men again on this side of heaven. That this is, this is his goodbye. This is his farewell. Now, when I look at that, I think about it. It's like, have you ever had to say goodbye to somebody? Uh, whether through circumstances, perhaps through death. I have. Difficult. Considering that, have you ever wished in retrospect that you could have just one more conversation with that person? I think there are tones of that here because Paul has a sense of urgency in his communicating with these elders here at this church. As we work our way through the chapter, I I don't want you to miss the candor. I I don't want you to miss his affection. I don't want you to miss the tenderness of Paul's words as he speaks to these men. And as he speaks, uh, he, he speaks from his heart, talks about what has led him to this point. He also shares deep concerns of what lies ahead, both for them as well as for himself. This is a powerful past. One of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament is Paul with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And we're going we're gonna to take our time to work through it. Maybe we'll finish next week. Maybe we won't. Uh, I hear chuckling. You guys know me. But we're going to look at it. Now, as we look at verses 18 through 21, and and although Luke penned this, it's sort of a typical Pauline sentence. I I picture Paul as like when he would talk, he would just suck in a deep breath because he would start to talk. And this sentence goes on for four verses. So we're going to go through it, then we'll come back and we'll break it down. So in verse 18, he says, And when they had come to him, Uh, He said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful. Have you ever heard the saying, I'm sorry, I can't hear you because your life is speaking way more loudly than your words? I have. I, I, there have been times where I've been tempted to say that, but it's kind of rude, so I don't. But have you known people that their life, I mean, they have, they have the talk, and it's, that's about it. Paul, he begins here, he reminds them that he consistently lived among them in a way that was both humble, and effective. Uh, he, what he's saying here is that his talk matched his walk. It, now, he was very clearly called to be a leader. No question. From the moment that light flashed about him, he's knocked off of his horse on the way to Damascus, and, and he heard the voice of Jesus himself saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he said, I have many things ahead for you, and you're going to suffer as well. Paul understood the difference between a worldly, 
top-down style of leadership that we see often in the business world. That's not how the body of Christ functions. He knew that leadership in the body was that of a humble servant. First Peter chapter 5, Peter breaks down the concept of servant leadership really well and in greater detail. In First Peter 5.1, we read, The elders uh, who are among you, I exhort, strongly encourage, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God uh, which is among you, serving as overseers. And then he goes on, Peter goes on, he makes three contrasts which apply to anybody who aspires to lead well. He says, not by compulsion, but willingly. (laughs) And I think about this and I think, you know what? People are led, they're not pushed. Uh, There's a difference. You know, a shepherd will lead sheep. (laughs) They're not cattle. Because you prod cattle, you don't prod sheep. (laughs) They don't do well with that. He says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. (laughs) In other words, if you're in it for the money, good luck. (laughs) That's, uh, you know, that's just not, that's not part of it. He says, and not being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I will never forget in 1987 when I was brought onto the board of a church, a Calvary Chapel in California, where my son continues on the board, my brother, best friend, and all that family are still there. I got called into the pastor's office. <laughs> and, and and this guy, Bob, uh, he was probably about 5'8 or 5'9, something like that. I was a big guy and and I was sitting there in a chair and he got, he came over next to me and, and he took his index finger and he stuck it in my face. He said, now you look. <laughs> I was like, yes, sir. Uh, he said, these are God's sheep. They're not your sheep. You love them. You pray for them and leave them alone. <laughs> and I was like, got it. I, we're good. I tell you what, some of the best, the single best piece of advice on leadership I ever received. I love you guys. I'm not here to push anybody around. I want to lead well. I want to lead by example. And I've got my, I'm broken in ways just like you. And yet together, this thing works. They're God's sheep. They're not mine. And, and that's so freeing. Paul's saying the same thing here in Acts. He's saying that his intention was to lead humbly and to lead by example. He also understood that there was a cost to being a disciple. There was a cost to being a leader. Uh, I often think about that that comic, uh, uh, Gary Larson, I think, that has a deer with a bullseye on his chest and the guy next to him says, heck of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> and there's days where I feel like that deer. The attacks that Paul had endured had been often and very often had at times had been brutal. And we'll look at that more next week. And we, we tend to forget sometimes when we read through the New Testament that he wasn't some sort of Bible superhero. He, he, he was a man. And he was a man who, who had emotions and he was a man who had weaknesses. He was a man that when he got pushed around, he didn't like it. 
And I take such encouragement from that because in his humanity we see, I look at that, sort of like I look at Peter. You know, Peter is like, you know, open mouth and then engage brain kind of thing. My son-in-law told me one time, he said, yeah, I just love Peter. He said, he proves to me that that God sets the bar pretty low. So there's hope for you and me, John. And, and I, I, I totally agree with that. He had fears, emotions, tears, those things that affect all of us. I also believe that he was letting the Ephesian elders know that serving Christ could be a really tough life. However, it's also a life that's more rewarding than any earthly pursuit. And yet there are tears and trials involved. Finally, in verses 20 and 21, we see that Paul held back nothing. Uh, he was fulfilling the ministry that God had called him to. It, when he says, I, I held back nothing, think about that, folks. How often do you see somebody on television or perhaps, in, and I don't have any church in mind, but to where it's like you're getting kind of this soft not even real gospel that's kind of therapeutic and it's like centered on me and not on God and all of that. He didn't teach his favorite topics or topics that would make people feel good. There are times where I read the Bible, there are times I'll be studying in my office and it's like, oh my goodness, Lord. I need to just stop and pray because you're just, you feel like the guy that you know, drinks a glass of water after he's been shot a bunch of times and is running out everywhere because it's convicting. Paul proclaimed all of it. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week when he says further in this chapter, I've not shunned to declare to you the full counsel of God. He says, I did this publicly and from house to house. Now, the Ephesian church is interesting. In the first century, it, it didn't have a central location like so many American churches, like our church. But it likely been organized as a series of house churches, at least fellowships that met in homes. Uh, and in teaching from house to house, Paul could ensure the accuracy and consistency of their doctrine. Uh, as well as maintain unity in the body of Christ. Now, he possibly brings this up because he had taken some heat for it. Uh, you know, when, if he had a, a, a bunch of elders that were doing, and there's a difference between a pastor and an elder, right? Presbyter, presbytos <laughs> and an appointment as a pastor. Uh, and he may have had problems with a house church and was addressing that with these guys saying, you know, I haven't declared, I haven't shunned to declare to you the full counsel of God. And I've taught you publicly, I've taught you from house to house. He wanted to ensure that the body of Christ had unity as well. And that unity is seen because elders from many of the house, the house churches that were represented there, they were all there together. They come from throughout the city, traveled to Miletus to hear what Paul had to say. Uh, by the way, a few years later, Paul would write to this church uh, from Rome and they would have a new pastor. His name was Timothy. Timothy would pastor this church until he was murdered, uh, beaten to death on the street. So he was continually pouring into these guys. And we can see that through the words that we're seeing and looking at here. And... 
the heart of the gospel was always on Paul's lips. It never changed. He constantly hammered home two very important points. And folks, if you leave these points out, you don't have the gospel. He says, talks about repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. I call those the Siamese twins of the New Testament. (laughs) God forbid that we should ever try to separate them. Because if you talk about faith and you leave out repentance, you don't have the whole message. If you talk about repentance, and yet there's not an object to the faith that you're, you're referring to, you don't have the whole gospel. You leave out the person, the work of Christ. Both of those are critically important. As I share the gospel with someone else, they need to understand that there's an aspect of repentance and an aspect of faith that has to come into play. Here's a quote I came across from Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite old guys to read. He says, and this is where I took the term Siamese twins. He says, I believe they're like Siamese twins. They are born together and they could not live asunder, but must die if you attempt to separate them. Faith always walks side by side with his weeping sister. True repentance. Isn't that good? So as we, as we look at this stuff, we're, not, we're going to stop there. I just have a couple of questions by way of application. The first is this. Does your talk match your walk? Understand, as I mentioned, we're all in process. And my life should look different than the average Joe or Jane that's out there bipping along in the world. We are called to be set apart, to live set apart. And if you're trying to live like the world, I'll tell you what, it's one of the hardest things to do. I spent a period of time as a younger Christian trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And it's like living with, it's trying to, if you ever get onto a boat from a pier and that first step onto the boat, it's like this and and, and you're just kind of, whoa, you're really out of balance. And it's not until you fully get on the boat or you fully get on the pier. Well, living with one foot in the world and one foot in the the kingdom is kind of like having one foot in a boat and one foot on the land. You will, as the Bible says, that man will be unstable in all of his ways. He's a double-minded man. And there are warnings about that. So does your talk match your walk? In Galatians chapter 5, there are two lists. I'm not going to go through them. We don't have the time. One of them is known as the deeds of the flesh, things you do. Things that the natural man, that, that nature of Adam expressing itself through us does. And he goes into the list. I mean, he talks about the whole thing. And he goes, it's an indictment if you're going to live according to the flesh. The other list that he has there in Galatians 5 is he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's interesting because one is deeds, things you do. One is fruit, things that get produced in you. Why would it be that? Because as the, as the vessel of the indwelling Holy Spirit, he is the one that wants to express his life through you. And as he does, there is fruit in our lives. I encourage you to take a look at those lists. The deeds of the flesh are evident, it says. Anger, bitterness, hostility. I mean, it just goes on and on. Wrath, envy, clamor, the fruit of the spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Second thing I'm going to bring up 
They don't see this carefully. Is this something you need to say? Now, I know this is a bit in the abstract, but I'm reminded of its importance in Paul's interactions with the Ephesian elders. And it's this. Don't put off the important conversations with those you love. Perhaps you have a burden for someone to step into the kingdom that's not. Perhaps you just need to let them know that you love them. I remember after my daughter went to heaven that I longed for one more conversation. And since then have made it a practice that I have those talks. Because we don't always get advance notice, folks. Finally, are you ready? Are you ready for his soon return? How do you answer that question? Simple. Repent and believe. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Whether we are as Enoch and we're caught up to meet with the Lord in the air, as we read there in 1 Thessalonians 4, or the Lord tarries and our last heartbeat here, bumps right up against our first heartbeat in eternity. If you've never turned your life over to Christ, if you have never trusted him, turned from the old life, that's what repent means. It means change your mind. You can be ready for his soon appearing in a moment in time. It just takes a simple prayer. Something like, God, I turn from my old life. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I... It's not based on anything that I could do, but simply based on your gift that you offer to me. In responding to the gospel, responding to him by simply turning from the old life, trusting Christ. Guess what that means? That means you're ready. And I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, I'm ready. I hope it's today. I hope it's on May 20th. No, I'm kidding. Um, We don't know. 